Well, election day is just over a week away now. And as we knew that date was coming a long time ago, we thought in our message planning, our series planning, that it would be good for us to spend some time talking about God's plan for government and the Christian life. And we call this series Talking Points. You maybe have heard politicians have talking points. They're the things that they want people to know and to remember going into an election. Well, in this series, we're taking a look at three specific things that we want you to know and to remember going into the election. And as Pastor Matt just said, we got this kicked off last week as he did a great job of reminding us of the differences between church and state and the the plans that God has for each. And kind of as in summary, there was this really awesome chart that Matt showed us at the end of the sermon last week that I thought would be a great reminder and summary of what we talked about. So here we have the things that are connected to the state or the government, the things that are connected to the church. So for the state, their their purpose is to help people, when it's being done right, live quiet and peaceful lives. The church isn't recognizes that our lives are not always going to be quiet and peaceful. And so our main goal and purpose is to point people to Jesus, but with our lives, help people live godly and holy lives. The state works to make bad people good. The church, we say it this way, that we make dead people, dead people in sin, that through Jesus and the gospel, that they become alive and a whole lot of things change. For the state, they commend the good and punish the bad. For the church, our goal is to help people repent of sin and to show fruits of that forgiveness with how they live. The instrument for the state is the the sword or the, the power that they have to punish. The instrument for the church is the message of Christ, the gospel. And I think this just gives you a good way to think about the differences and how they sometimes can interact, but oftentimes they don't. And so today, what I get the privilege of doing is poking a little bit at the tension that people have relationally when it comes to politics, and then also giving us a plan forward that I pray is a better way than what you oftentimes see. So on Thursday was the second and final presidential debate. But I have a a question for you. How many of you watched the first presidential debate back in the late September. Raise your hand if you watched some or part of that debate. Okay, so almost everyone. All right, you can put your hands down. Um, A little class participation. I want you to turn to someone near you whom you came to church with today. If uh, you're by yourself, you'll just have to do some thinking. If you're online, talk amongst yourselves in the room. Pretend the person next to you saw none of the debate. And I want you to do this. Describe to them what you saw. Pretend the person next to you saw none of the debate, and I want you to take 20 seconds to describe what you saw. Ready? Go. At home, you can do this too.
I'm not sure exactly what you said or how you described it, but here's what I will say that for me, um, as I watched these two, um, frankly, senior citizens, grown men, um, act not like grown, mature men with each other in conversation, I felt, I felt uncomfortable. I felt frustrated. I honestly, this is just for me. You maybe have felt differently. I actually felt embarrassed about American politics. And during the course of that 90-minute debate, uh, I actually turned it off, I think, three times. And then I turned it off because I just could not stomach it. It made me uncomfortable. And I'd be like, in my brain, there'd be this little voice, it's your civic duty to watch the debate. You need to be informed. So I'd turn it back on, and then I'd turn it off again. This happened two or three different times. And while it was something that none of us probably enjoyed, the Unfortunate part is it also probably surprised hardly any of us either. We have a culture right now, whether it's our politicians or our people, who have a very difficult time talking about important topics in a healthy and fruitful way. And frankly, in many ways, this has always been the case in American politics. I wonder, do you think there was ever an era where people gathered together for Thanksgiving dinner and said, you know what, I have the perfect icebreaker question for, for Thanksgiving this year. We're gonna go around the table and share who you voted for and why. I don't think that probably there has ever been an era where that was the case. But what I've also noticed is that now, today, probably more than ever, we are more polarized than ever before. We have less of an opportunity to have good, healthy discussion and interaction about things that are, frankly, really, really important. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But there's two reasons that I want to kind of point at that I think are going to be helpful when afterwards we get into God's word for today. The two reasons, or at least two of them, that I've noticed is, first of all, this. Why so much polarization? I call it this, and this is a pretty big word for me, um, but I'm using it anyway, a false dichotomy of the issues. Maybe it's better that I explain what I mean than just to share that statement. So what we've come to sort of think and feel in this country, or at least this is the messages that we hear, that when it comes to important topics, it's black and white, and there is no gray, and there is no middle ground. Let me, let me give you some examples of this, and I want you to think about where you lie on the spectrum of these things. So, for instance, um, if you're someone that feels like we could do better as a society when it comes to um, race and racial equality, if you feel that way, you also probably are made to feel by the media or maybe social media that you're also a person that has to be for defunding the police, but there's no middle ground. Or, or how about this one? If, if you're someone that maybe believes that there should be wise laws for immigration, that open borders are probably not a good thing, yet that same person is meant or felt made to feel as then that they're unloving 
towards all immigrants? Or how about you feel like there should be maybe some stricter gun laws when you look around and see some of the things that are happening? Well, if you feel that way, then of course you're a person who wants to totally do away with the Second Amendment. Even the masks that we wear have become politicized. And if someone wants to or says, hey, I'm going to willingly wear a mask for the good of society, at least that's, I'm trusting my leaders on this. Right away, you're pigeonholed by many as someone who's allowing government to interfere too much in your lives. (laughs) And I understand there are some people that probably are on one end of the spectrum or the other. But when I talk to people in conversation, when I look at my own heart and my own mind, for most people, there's this middle that no one talks about and most people are at. So there's a false dichotomy of the issues. What you hear is not what most people are feeling or thinking. And the second thing is this. It's kind of a buzzword, but I'm going to use the term cancel culture. And for those of you who aren't exactly sure what that means, there's different variations of it, but essentially what it means is that if, if you say something that's wrong or you do something at some point in your life that's wrong, especially on one of these big topics that we just talked about, or even, I've seen this, if you do say something, it's not necessarily wrong, but you say it in the wrong way. <laughs> you use the wrong word. All of a sudden, you are forever labeled as being a bad person. And there's something inherently wrong with you. And so we just cancel that person's job. We just cancel that person as no longer being able to speak into a topic because maybe at the very lightest they had, they misspoke a little bit, which by the way, is the exact opposite, right? Of the gospel. We're getting second chances all of the time because of Jesus. But what happens because of cancel culture is that everyone's afraid to talk because they might be misinterpreted or they might say it, not wrong, but maybe even just the wrong way. And so there's not healthy discussion and love between people listening. Now, I would like to say that even as culture gets this wrong, that the Christian church and followers of Jesus are doing a whole lot better with it. But as I look around, I would say, for the most part, the Christian church isn't doing better with this. That the followers of Jesus also tend to be quick to judge and slow to listen. And frankly, when I look at my own heart and my own reactions, I know that sometimes I'm in the same boat. But here's what I want to lay on your hearts today, guys, right before now we get into the word. The Christian church needs to do better. What I mean by that is that the followers of Jesus need to do better. We need to act differently. And we have every reason to do so. The first century pastor of the Jerusalem church was also Jesus' half-brother. His name was James. And as he kind of directed his church in regards to what does it look like to interact with other people, 
James gave this encouragement, said, everyone, that is Christ followers, because we have the motivation to do this because of what Jesus has done. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's definitely countercultural right now. Quick to listen, slow to speak. That means we use these two things more than we use this one thing. And some speculate that's why God gave us two ears and only one mouth, because he wanted us to listen more and to speak less. But here's the reality for all of us, and it's our first fill-in for today, that we need to be aware of, it's inherent in our sinful natures, that we love being right. But God has called us to love people. We love being right. But what God has called us to is something different. He has called us to love people. And when Jesus gathered his disciples together, we talked about this about a month ago or so. We use this exact text. He said, this is how you will know who my people are. And it wasn't because they'll vote Democrat or they'll vote Republican. It was by their love you will know who the followers of Jesus are by their love. That's what Jesus did. And let me just say, that is hard. Loving people is difficult when they see things differently than you or when they think differently than you. It's a whole lot easier just to put people into categories And to think, well, because they vote that way or because they shared that post or because I know this about them, then I know everything about them. That is a false dichotomy. It is just not true for 99% of people. But the reason we do it is because it's easier that way. It's harder to be patient. It's sometimes harder to do the work of listening and loving. So what do we do? What do we do, Christians? What do we do, Christian church? Well, what I know is this. Well, what do we do? That's the question. What do we do? Here's what I know. I know that probably individually, I'm not going to be able to change on my own the social fabric of our country. But I know what I can do. It's the person across the street that has 10 signs in their lawn. And I may not necessarily love all the signs that I can make a difference with. It's the person wearing the hat that I would never wear that I can make a difference with. It's the person who drives the car littered with bumper stickers on the back that I can make a difference with. We can make a difference one person at a time. And that is what Jesus did during his ministry. And I want to give you an example of exactly what Jesus did as he interacted with a woman in the county, the area called Samaria. So we're going to turn to John chapter four. And in in Jesus' interaction, he's going to give us some great direction on how we interact with people that may not be like us. Here's the first verse. Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
And this is really of a key point, and I'm going to uh, press pause here, and I want to show you a map. So where Jesus was at this time was up here near the Sea of Galilee. Where he and the disciples were going were down here in Jerusalem. And what do you see in the middle? Samaria, right? But here's what I also want you to know, that when John writes that Jesus had to go to, a town, had to, go to Samaria, it wasn't because it was physically in between. That's not what he meant. Even though that's true, that's not what he meant. Because here's the reality. Most Orthodox Jews would not ever step foot in Samaria. There were social and racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans that had, had spanned centuries. And maybe some of you know this because we've talked about it before, but I want to refresh your memory. If I'm a Jew in Galilee and I want to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, I don't go this way through Sychar. If I'm a Jew, I go on this side of the Jordan River so as to not even step foot in Samaria and go to Jerusalem. Or there was a path. It was okay if people went through Samaria, but they had to hug the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea and then get to Jerusalem. You you know what the Jews did to Samaritans? They canceled them. Cancel culture is not a 21st century American thing. They thought some things about Samaritans because of some things that some Samaritans did a whole long time ago, and so that was just the way it is. And they canceled the Samaritans, but Jesus would not do that. He had to go through Samaria, not because he literally had to. He could have gone around, but because there was a reason to be uncomfortable. There was a reason to go where other people weren't going. He had something to talk about. He had a conversation that he needed to have. Verse 5. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria, I pointed it out on the map already, called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Next verse. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So, so far in this section, this is probably some of the most nondescript type of verses in scripture when it comes to just kind of sharing where Jesus went and he sat down and he had a cup of water and he started talking to a Samaritan woman. And yet these verses are so packed with stuff that are important for us to recognize. Jesus was doing some things that probably made the disciples raise their eyebrows and that the uh, pharisaical elite would have thought Jesus being crazy to do. First thing, he's in Samaria. Second thing, he's talking to a Samaritan So, I mean, it's one thing to walk through Samaria. It's another thing to actually talk to someone. Third thing he's doing, he's talking to a Samaritan woman, which men culturally weren't supposed to do in public. Jesus is destroying all of the social norms, not by anything real outrageous, by just by acknowledging that the Samaritan woman was a person. 
and not being distracted by all the things people might think of her because of her category, Samaritan. See, I I love this. And this is so important for you as we think about the people we interact with in this country during election cycle and always. Jesus saw people, not categories. Jesus saw people, not categories. Frankly, the people who saw categories the most in the first century at the time of Jesus were the religious people, the religious elites. They spoke in categories. Jesus saw and spoke in terms of people. And he did this all the time. In fact, the Pharisees were surprised at the people he did talk to. If you read about Jesus' ministry, who's he ministering to? It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers and the lame and the poor and the outcast, right? And the Samaritans. And it just amazes me when... I see Jesus, the son of God, and how he had time for people that the people of this world had no time for. It's amazing to see how deep and wide and long and high is the love of God through Jesus Christ. You know what else amazes me? How different sometimes I am than Jesus how different when I look around, how collectively sometimes the church is than Jesus. You see, when someone's not like us or when they vote differently or when we're irritated by something they did, it is so hard to forgive sometimes. We get so upset and we write them off. We cancel them sometimes before we've even had a chance to listen to them. See, this is what Jesus teaches us here. And what's so important is we learn how to better interact with people. Our second fill-in, if we're going to love well, we need to listen well. If we're going to love well, we need to listen well. And that's exactly what Jesus did over the course of the next 10 verses, we're not going to have a chance to read them all. Jesus sits down and has the longest recorded in scripture conversation with anyone in in the gospels, a Samaritan woman. He sits down, he takes time, he listens. You know what he finds out? Something he actually already knew going into it that there was a burden that this Samaritan woman was carrying, that the people, like the disciples, if they had never taken the time to listen or to talk, would have never known about. He learned about her in ways that a normal person would have never known if they didn't take the time to listen now, there, there's a lot of life applications to this. If we're going to love well, we need to listen well. Um, sidebar here. This could maybe be the most important 
marriage advice I could ever give you. It can revolutionize and revitalize your marriage. If you would just love well by listening well, guys. (laughs) But because this series is about God's plan for us in politics and government, um, I think I'm going to stick to the application of the importance of listening to people who might be different than you. You see, after you do your research and you read balanced blogs and news articles, and after you consider what issues are important to you and to your faith and to this country, and you decide who you're going to vote for, that's exactly what you should do. But then... Then when it comes to, again, that person with the 10 signs in their lawn and the person who wears that particular hat, I want you to make sure you're not casting judgment on them as if you know exactly why they vote the way they do or why they think the way they do. We need to listen, not to the media, not to politicians, We need to listen to our neighbor. We need to listen to the person across the hallway in the dorm. We need to listen to our coworker. Um, I I had in my study for today, I heard a pastor kind of bring this out that um, struck me a little bit. He he said, have you ever heard people say statements like this? I don't understand how anyone could think that way. Or, I don't understand how anyone could react that way. Or, I don't understand how anyone could vote that way. And and one of the things he brought out in that is a deficiency, not in the person that he's talking about, but a deficiency in who? The person who's saying these statements, because notice how each of them start. (laughs) I don't understand. And his encouragement was, well... If you don't understand, then it's your job to understand, to get to understand. And that does not mean that you agree necessarily. It means that you get to understand so much that if someone were to ask you why that person is voting the way they are, that you would be able to explain it even if you don't necessarily agree with it. But we don't get to that point because you know what it takes? It takes something Americans don't do very well right now. It takes the fact that we need to listen. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak and slow to get angry. So that's what I, I've actually done over the last couple of weeks um, I've called up some of my good friends that um, I've had chance over the years to uh, talk politics with and just listen to them. Um, Had one come to my office and we talked a little bit and asked questions and they've asked questions of me. And I found out two things. First thing is this. It's complicated, guys. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of things that people think about. And frankly, 
there are a lot of backgrounds. And some people weren't raised the way that you were. And that kind of leads to the second thing. It's kind of a humorous thing. I've also found out that the people I talk to, they weren't crazy. (laughs) As sometimes the far right or the far left try to portray that everyone in the other category, and that's the problem again, we talk about categories, that they're all crazy. Talk to a number of people. None of them were that. All of them were mindful and prayerful and thoughtful. It didn't mean I agreed with everything they said, but they weren't crazy and it's complicated. So where was all of this leading for Jesus? Well, after Jesus had an opportunity to listen for a while, Jesus pointed out something that he had known about the woman. Verse 16, he told her, Jesus did, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You know, when you read through this, if you want to read through all of it on your own in John chapter four, it almost comes off a little bit as if Jesus is unloving by bringing up a topic that was very difficult for the woman to have to think about and talk about. But that's how growth happens when we are willing to confront the uncomfortable and to talk about it. And so Jesus does that with the woman. And you know what the reality was? She was carrying something to the well that day that was way heavier than a jar of water. Just think about this. A woman who had had five husbands, And we don't know why we have some guesses, but there's probably three main things that could have happened. The first is that maybe all five of those husbands died. And if that were the case, first of all, it'd be really hard to find a sixth to marry a woman where five husbands have already died. (laughs) That's the first. But secondly, she'd be carrying a whole lot of grief, wouldn't she? that much death that she'd experienced with people that were close to her, or maybe she's married five rotten guys and they all left her for one reason or another. And if that was the case, that she had been burned five times, she would have come to that well that day with a whole bunch of self-image problems, feeling about as low as you could feel. Or maybe, and this is probably the most likely, but we don't know for sure, maybe she was the one that had been philandering and adulterous. And if that was the case, that she had cheated and that she had done some things wrong in her past, relationally, she would have been bringing a whole bunch of guilt and shame to the well. But no matter how you slice it, there was a lot going on inside of her. And you know what? This is why Jesus had to go to Samaria. 
not because he physically had to, but because there was a person. He sees people, not categories. There was a person that didn't need to be led to the right politician or the right husband. None of that would have worked. She needed to be pointed to something bigger, better, and more important, to a Lord and Savior who does not see categories, but sees people. And not only the reason why he had to go to Samaria, but he had to come to earth because he loved her and loved you and loved us that much, that he wasn't willing to cancel us out. But instead, he allowed himself, in a way, to be canceled on the cross so that he could come back in all of his power with victory for you and forgiveness for this woman and for a new life for all of us. And just think, if Jesus had not walked through Samaria, he would have missed, or she would have missed, an opportunity. You see... To truly love a person is not to love their vote, is not to love their political affiliation. To truly love a person is to love their soul. And my friends, this is the calling that God has placed on our lives, not to convert people to your political color or persuasion or stance, Not that we see politics in the same way, but that we, through the Holy Spirit, see Jesus in the same way as Lord and Savior and as our hope. So our last fill-in, if we're going to love well, we need to value a person's soul more than a person's vote. And let me say this once again as we close. This is the harder way. It is way quicker and way easier to think that every issue is black and white. And there are some black and white issues, but most of them are not that way. It's a whole lot harder and messier and takes more time and is more exhausting to listen before we judge. But that is what God has called us to do. And that is our greatest opportunity as Christians and as a church to love, to listen, and to point people to Jesus. And to that end, church, I pray that's exactly what we do. Not just in the next nine days, but always. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, like so many things in your word, this is a whole lot easier to talk about than it is to do. And Lord, I think probably all of us in one way or another need to get on our knees and and to just confess that we have not done this very well sometimes, being quick to listen and slow to speak. And for that, Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness and that we don't need to carry that heavy jar of sin around with us, but instead we're set free to live in a new way with a new lens and a new mission to point people to you. Because in you, 
and not a political leader, not a political party, not a, not a political stance or platform in you, in you there's hope. We pray that we can be conduits to that. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen.